the most powerful thing about design thinking are the mindsets that come out of it. That's what we call them at Moda. Um, or you might think of them as the social emotional skills that come along with it. And so you're right. We're all problem solvers. We, we do it every single day. We get dressed, you know, we, we figure all kinds of things out, but I think we don't always recognize the power in that. And, and we don't always, especially once we become adults, continue to hone skills that help us with that, like building empathy for other people. Welcome to Learning Unboxed, a conversation about teaching, learning, and the future of work. I'm your host and chief goddess of the PASS Foundation, Annalise Corbin. We know the current model for education is obsolete. It was designed to create fleets of assembly line workers, not the thinkers and problem solvers needed today. We've seen the innovations that are possible within education, and it's our goal to leave the box behind and reimagine what education can look like in your own backyard. Welcome to today's episode of Learning Unboxed. As always, I'm excited to talk with another great innovator in the transformative education space. And today we are going to be talking about design thinking as a positive disruptor and how we think about the concept of what is school and why does it matter. And joining us today is Laura Flushi, who is the Executive Director of the Museum of Design Atlanta. Laura, welcome to Learning Unboxed. Thanks so much. It's wonderful to be here. Excellent. And so let's set some context for our listeners as we get started. Uh, the Museum of Design Atlanta, or MODA, um, is the only museum in the Southeast dedicated solely to design. And they define design as a creative force that inspires change, transforms lives, and makes the world a better place all great things. Um, and under Laura's leadership, the museum has been transformed into Atlanta's design hub. And uh, as a leader in design thinking and STEAM education for youth, and as a trailblazer in exploring ways that a museum can serve community in the 21st century. In addition to offering programs and exhibitions, MODA has become a primary source for design thinking and STEAM education in the Southeast. And we love all of those things here at Learning in Box. Mm -hmm. So um, super exciting. So Laura, um, for our listeners who come to us from all over the world, share with us just a little bit, if you will, about sort of the, the origin story of, of MODA and why design as a focus for um um, a museum in particular? Sure. So uh, here at Moda, we like to say we're 28 going on eight. Um, and they're both lies at this point because we've been saying that for years and years. Um, but we're 30 plus years old. Uh, but we pushed the restart button on the museum in 2011 when we moved to a new location. The museum was founded by people who were involved in bringing the Olympics to Atlanta. And they looked around and realized that our cultural institutions in the city were not fully representing the broad demographics of the city. And they wanted to do that. So they got some temporary exhibition space in a, at a building tower downtown and began to put up exhibitions. And over the years, uh, saw that design was a growing industry in Atlanta and that design exhibitions were popular. And so in 2004, we became the Museum of Design Atlanta, dedicated solely to design. And then when we moved in 2011, 
the mandate for our move really was to grow and to have greater impact on our community. But a very interesting thing happened when we opened our doors in our new location. We're in Midtown Atlanta now, or what we might call the Midtown Arts Corridor. People started coming in and asking, what's a design museum? And as we tried to answer that question, we realized that everybody involved had a different answer. And so we had some challenging conversations to decide exactly what design would mean for us. And there were people who were very committed to a more traditional idea of design as beautiful objects, um, which is completely valid, right? And we see it all the time, uh, wonderful, a wonderful thing that design can do. And there were a group of people very committed to the idea of design as probably the most powerful tool we have for taking on the big 21st century challenges. And that's where we landed. Um, so I always say that my job for the past 12 years or so has been to figure out what does it mean to think of design as process and as problem solving when you're trying to figure out what an exhibition should be like or what a program for adults or an educational opportunity for kids should be like, and especially in a museum setting. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, it really is interesting. The work that we do with the communities and certainly with schools and educators, um, I, I could argue that there are a thousand different versions of what is design, what is certainly what is design thinking, right? And how do you tie all of that into um, the modes or methods in which we use uh, to pro solve problems? And so I can appreciate um, sort of the, the difficulty in the conversation that as an organization you sort of have to work through to, to get to that space. I think it's fascinating too, if you sort of step back just, just a little bit and sort of think about how the, the origin story and the journey that the organization has sort of gone through sort of led you sort of to the position or the thinking, the space that you're occupying right now, both physically as well as um, theoretical in terms of the work and whatnot that you're doing. I'm curious, sort of as you step back and think about that same journey, where do you see the greatest sort of um, community-based impact opportunity that you occupy is not really the right word, but, but, but obviously there's this great need within the community that only Moda can fill locally and you're doing that. And so I guess my question is sort of how did you sort of round to be sort of that particular space and that iteration or that service that you're providing? Um, I don't know if I have a how-to answer for you, but I do have some, some thoughts. Maybe they're interesting. Um, over the past years, as we've been growing into, and you know, we work in a pretty designerly fashion here. I don't think we'll ever say we're fully formed. Um, we're always we're always changing and morphing and trying out new things. Um, but as we have been maybe becoming more ourselves and really embracing this idea of design, that the definition of design that we have guides us to, um, we have seen our audience change. And that has made me think a lot about a lot of different kinds of needs um, in our community and how Moda can help to fill those. So one has to do with arts and culture. 
you know, we don't have a lot of arts education in schools these days, or at least it's not as formal as it used to be. Obviously, there are some schools doing amazing things. Please don't anyone take that personally. Um, but I would say that we're not necessarily giving people, and maybe we never have, the tools for interacting with more traditional arts and culture organizations. And so museums can be scary. The opera can be scary. Going to the symphony can be scary. In, in the arts and culture world, we have a name for that. It's called threshold anxiety. Um, and it means to have a fear of going somewhere where you're afraid people won't look like you or you won't have the right clothes on or you won't know what to do or what to think or those kinds of things. And one of the interesting things, as we've seen with Moda, is that we're able to break that down in a couple of ways. And it's, a, it's helped us attract a very different audience than a more traditional cultural institution. Um, our audience is young, uh, mostly below 50. Um, lots of families are involved. And our audience is very diverse as well. And I think that's for a couple of reasons. Um, one, when you come into a museum that has an exhibition about narrative in video games, as we have right now, or that has an exhibition about hip hop and its impact on architecture, potential impact on architecture, um, or, and I could go on, or, or the future of food. These are things that are part of all of our everyday lives. And so they're a little more immediately accessible. Um, I, I want to be clear that I'm also trained as an art historian, so I love a traditional museum almost more than anyone. I'm not in any way um, being pejorative there. But I do think that we have a need for accessibility in our arts and culture institutions that a design museum can help to fill. And I think that once people are in, um, we see a, a kind of revelation happen. I always say that when someone leaves and says, and this is common, I never realized that every single thing in the world is designed. I always think that's, that's the biggest win that we can get. To understand that design is something that shapes every single aspect of our lives every single day and that we can participate in it, whether we all become designers or not. I think that's empowering for a lot of people when they learn that. And that's something we really work towards as well. And I think it also helps to make us more accessible to audiences that maybe might not feel welcome or might feel reluctant at more traditional institutions. I think I probably didn't answer your question at all, but there we go. No, actually, I appreciate that very much. You did. And I think that's a great segue because it really sort of leads me into digging in a little bit to, you know, in a recent example, um, one of the projects um, that the museum has launched was um, the Climate and Change Project. And again, extremely accessible. That's one of the things that I really love about it. So you're taking on a topic that lots and lots of folks are struggling with in a variety of different ways. And not only are you sort of making it um, accessible, but more importantly, you're giving hands-on opportunities to it. And then you've made the modifications to allow it to be sort of not just I have to come specifically to Moda, but I there's elements that allow us to, to participate from being in a school or community center or a library. Can we talk about that project just a little bit? Because I think it's really intriguing how you sort of grabbed multiple elements of this and you've pulled it all together into a project that is completely relevant and timely right now. 
Sure. So we were all set to launch the Climate and Change Project in early 2020. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was so many meant of to things be, that we were going to yeah, launch, exactly. right? <laughs> Everyone's new origin story. Mm-hmm. Um, it was it was meant to be three exhibitions and a whole series of programs, both for adults and youth, that would look at design's power to help us take on climate change, whether it is to reverse aspects of it or whether it is to mitigate the effects that we're feeling. Um, We very much wanted those exhibitions and those programs to be optimistic and empowering rather than pessimistic. Um, And I, I would be remiss to to not mention that we had the support of an amazing group in town called the Candida Fund, who believe very much um, in the power of individuals to make a difference in the world. Um, The exhibitions that we were to put up were meant to show how designers are already taking on climate change. Um, The first one was to be about biomimicry. Um, We put it up uh, and then opened it and closed it nine days later when we closed. But it it show it it positioned nature as the great teacher for designers. I think for designers, a lot of times, you know, to solve a problem, it seems most natural to look back at how other humans have taken that on. But we have billions of years of R and D on Earth in terms of natural systems, and so it demonstrated the ways that um, designers are using the knowledge of nature to solve human problems. Once we closed for COVID, we got creative um, and we made a 3D version of the exhibition. So you can still walk through it on our website right now. But we started building virtual biomimicry challenges for schools and organizations that you can access on our website. Um, And just trying to get, having people do talks virtually Um, all those sorts of things. We already, even before we started the Climate and Change Project, had incorporated a lot about climate change, particularly into youth programming, because children are passionate about this issue. And it came up in almost everything we did. If we were solving real world problems, we found that young people wanted to talk about it and they're mad at us and they should be. Um, And so we were already talking about that, but we made that an even stronger component of our youth programs, which happened both virtually and in person. That exhibition didn't get the public fanfare that it should have. We also did an exhibition about bicycles and bicycle infrastructure and our need for alternative forms of transportation. That was a big hit. Again, lots of programming with it. And then the Climate and Change Project culminated And really, it will never end for us because we're always going to be talking about this, but in an exhibition called Full Circle Design Without End. And that exhibition looked at regenerative design, that is, design processes across many disciplines that aim to restore the natural balance of our earth, whether it's through creating a circular economy um, and reusing materials, or whether it is through using processes of biomimicry to find better ways, maybe to make a building material, all those, all those kinds of things. And again, because of COVID, we became very, we've become a hybrid organization. And so programs are both virtual um, and in person for both youth and adults. 
that exhibition stayed up for a while. And then we um, partnered with the Candida Fund again. And we're in the process right now of turning that into an on-demand exhibition so that people will be able to inexpensively, relatively inexpensively, download materials from the exhibition and put them up in any school or community center or library. I mean, I guess you could put them in your house if you wanted to. But um, really just trying to make them accessible to everybody. Um, They'll come with a suite of um, educational support materials for youth and then for adult groups as well. But really our goal with all of it is to share that this is in our reach. It's possible for us to make the changes we want to to make. There's no one answer. And I think with design, we often find that, you know, it's a kind of case by case scenario. We have to solve problems that way. But it doesn't always have to be some complex, huge government-run thing for us to take on climate change or any other big challenge we have. And I hope that people find the stories inspiring and think, oh, this could happen in my community, or this could, this is something I could vote for, or this is something I could advocate for. Absolutely. And I would suspect that many folks will in fact do that. And I would also assume that the schools be really excited about the ability to grab on-demand materials, um, utilize um, information and um, a a set of processes, if you will, that have been created, embedded by experts in the space, especially as, you know, schools or teachers really struggle with design thinking. For a lot of folks, it seems to be this complex, very abstract idea. And yet we do it every single day, right? None of us show up to work, you know, with naked. So we're all going through the design process as we're standing in front of our wardrobe every day, whatever that might look like, um, and making choices. And so yet it it is a mythical thing, though, for many people. Why do you think that is? I think it's because we've presented it as a formulaic methodology that you have to hire a professional to teach you and then practice in a certain way. And I feel very, very strongly that design thinking is not that. I mean, it it can be, right? It can sometimes be useful to sit down with a group and go end to end on it. And for some groups, it's a good way to learn about it. But to me, the most powerful thing about design thinking are the mindsets that come out of it. That's what we call them at Moda. Um, Or you might think of them as the social emotional skills that come along with it. And so you're right. We're all problem solvers. We we do it every single day. We get dressed. You know, we, we figure all kinds of things out. But I think we don't always recognize the power in that. And, and we don't always, especially once we become adults, continue to hone skills that help us with that, like building empathy for other people or working collaboratively is a really tough one for both youth and adults, right? Or, or even just investing in the time to brainstorm and letting your creativity and your imagination fly without worry about what's possible or what's not. And then the resilience of, of learning when things don't go right and 
jumping back in and, and, sh- and learning from that and trying that again. I, I think those mindsets can be practiced in any single situation and that they don't have to be done in a certain order um, as design thinking is often presented and, and that sometimes you just have to figure out which one you need at that moment to take on a problem or a challenge. Yeah. And I think that that when we get too mired down sort of in the process pieces or the idea that step A must, you know, um, come before step B and so on and so forth, that we forget about the freedom of creativity. And within that space and freedom of creativity, we can get to an awful lot of potential solutions to problems that we're trying to tackle. And then, you know, as we sort of backtrack and then think about, okay, well, what does it look like? You know, what are all the elements? Then we really get to, to dig in deeply into the, some of the design elements, but we're, we, we don't have to be stuck in the order uh, of operations, right. if you will. But I see that as well. And I think that folks really, really struggle with that. And I also think that folks who've been trained in design thinking often struggle with that because process for a lot of people is really, really important. It's a tough thing to get people to work around. Yeah, I agree. And I also think it can it can be something that people protect I don't, I don't know quite how to say that, but they, they protect it as something the, that the process is sacred and it's kind of theirs, right? Or, mm-hmm. and, and I don't, I, I don't really even think there's an argument for that. And I think it, sh- it should be a very, I don't know, process owned by everyone. It mm-hmm. is, frankly. It is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, design design thinking is not proprietary, nor nor should it ever be. And the minute we make it proprietary, I think that's really when the wheels come off. In my mind, it becomes it comes a process. It becomes this linear this this linear function, and that is not what design is. No, and I think also you get disappointed, right? Mm-hmm. Like if you follow the process and then you don't have a miraculous ending where everything is solved, then you feel like you didn't succeed and, and it just can't work that way. It's more, it's more about being in the process all the time. Yeah, absolutely. I'm super curious, Laura, when you have the opportunity to work with schools, teachers, educators, whether they be formal or informal, who are really struggling with figuring out how to bring design thinking and design processes not the linear version of it, uh, but elements, let's go back, let's say design elements, right, into their day-to-day practice. How do Mm -hmm. you coach folks to get comfortable in that space? It's really a tough one. I bump up against this all the time, and I'm honestly hoping you have a great solution. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know if I have a solution. To me, to me, it's about loosening up. It's about, it's about having fun Mm -hmm. and understanding that, Posing challenges, even when they're silly, um, helps to bring that those ways of thinking in into a classroom. Um, one of my favorite exercises to do with absolutely anybody, including sometimes myself, um, is is uh, there's a, there is on the web. I'm not going to know the address right off the top of my head. A protobot generator, and you push a button, and it says. You know, it gives you a, a random and silly challenge, like design a taxi for a hairbrush or something like that. And so I think for me, sometimes removing the weight of an actual piece of curriculum or a problem 
and just practicing in a fun way, in a silly way that loosens things up um, is a great way to introduce the ideas, um, get people started brainstorming, working collaboratively, prototyping, having fun, and then thinking about how can we apply this to other things that we do? You know, that, that wasn't hard, right? We had a lot of fun doing it. We used Lego or we used, you know, whatever. So, so you know, how, how do we now take it and, and still have fun with it, um, but embrace the creativity that comes with it uh, as we take on a piece of curriculum or a real challenge in, a, in an organization? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I think that's a really great way to sort of help folks um, sort of get over that threshold. So I appreciate that. Um, just play with it. Have fun. I love that. You know, as we sort of look at or think about sort of next iterations, I'm super curious, you know, as I, I look at the list of things that Moda is doing, um, especially as it relates to sort of thinking about and teaching that uh, design thinking or STEM mindset um, as it relates to kids um, within the community. What what do you see as sort of like a, a next big challenge that Moda is uniquely positioned to solve within the community? When I started working at Moda in 2010, we had a very strong summer camp program that was really STEM-based. And over time, we integrated a lot of design thinking into that. And it grew. And then during COVID, you know, summer camp was out of the question. Right. But we were incredibly fortunate in many ways. Um, One was when we closed our doors, on the day we closed our doors, we sat around a table. And I said, what are we going to do for those two weeks that were closed, right? right? Um, We did that too. Lo and behold, (laughs) right? Wow, that two weeks turned into... A year. I don't know about you, but it was it was it was a long time, right? Yeah, it was yeah. fourteen months for us. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. But we have we've we've always had incredible educators mm-hmm. on our team here, um, and they looked at the rest of the staff and they said, every single thing we do with youth, we can do virtually if everyone will pitch in and help us. Mm-hmm. And we basically had no idea what we were doing, but we all went home and got slack. Uh-huh. And a week later, we rolled off. Our, we rolled out our first, you know, virtual programs for kids, and they were crazy popular. And a foundation that has always supported us. We had an application into them, saw what we were doing very quickly, and said, "Oh, you have a grant application into us. We're going to double what we're going to give you because we want you to keep doing this because youth need it, families need it, um, schools are going to need it. Those sorts of things." And so, for 14 months, we did nothing but virtual programming for youth. And that included summer camps, that included everything. And we learned a lot about, you know, as everyone did, we're not, we're hardly unique in this, what works and what doesn't. But what I think we learned also is that there's not a ton of design programming out there for kids that's virtual and accessible. And there's a lot you can there's a lot you can do. And so, you know, one of my overarching goals is to is to build a design army of kids across the United States who are empowered to take on the things they want to take on. Um, you know, kids, kids get real world problems. They have great solutions to them. 
Um, and I think that Moda, you know, probably with the help of a lot of people is, is well poised to say, Hey, let's, you know, let's give these kids what, what they need and they want so that they can be the citizens they want to be. Um, I mean, they already can be, but let's, let's empower them. So they're ready to roll when they're grown up. Absolutely. And we see that over and over again, you know, the minute the adults sort of get out of the way, what kids can come up with, the solutions and the ideas and honestly, even the collaborations that they can envision are things that I believe often as these sort of adults in the room, if you will, we are so constrained by our own experience that we forget to just be free free-flowing and free-thinking, right? Because we've had to march down a row or, or um, you know, uh, follow rules for so long that we've forgotten the joy of just free-form creativity. Absolutely. I completely agree. Um, and, yeah, I, w- I want more of kids figuring things out. Yeah. So last, last question as we sort of wrap up this conversation. So, you know, in a, in a perfect world, um, the next thing that, that Moda builds that you're super excited about, um, whether it be an exhibit or an opportunity um, uh, space for the community or for teaching and learning, what's the thing that gets you jazzed that you guys get to do next? I think one thing I'm really excited about is we are going to start revisiting this fall a series of programs or a theme for programs that we took on in 2020, which is structured around the idea of design justice and design activism. Oh, I love that. And the idea that design, again, Mm -hmm. can help us create a more just and equitable world. Um, In this case, we're going to be talking a lot about the virtual world and and our need to create a virtual world that does not simply replicate the structures that we have in the real world because they aren't just and equitable Mm -hmm. and our need to be really intentional about creating a whole different kind of virtual world and how people are already working on that and the conversations that are going on. So I'm really excited to engage in those conversations. Um, Just at this moment, also that tools like AI, which I think can be great tools for us, um, are are something we're talking about and grappling about and trying to figure, grappling with and trying to figure out. So thinking about design as a path to a much better future is, Mm -hmm. is, yeah. What gets me really excited? I cannot wait to see that. So I want to circle <laughs> back around because I think that 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 project gets me jazz too. So I wish you um, all the luck in the world on on, on being able to uh, to to work on that. Def- desperately well, needed. Some of it's going to be virtual, so you can join us. Excellent. I can't wait for that. That's awesome. Laura, thank you so much for taking time out of your day and joining us on Learning Unbox, sharing with us the incredible work that Moda is doing and uh, just being part of our story. Thanks. It's really a pleasure to be here. Um, and thanks for doing the work that you do. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for Learning Unboxed, a conversation about teaching, learning, and the future of work. 
I want to thank my guests and encourage you all to be part of the conversation. Meet me on social media at Annalise Corbin and join me next time as we stand up, step back, and lean in to reimagine education.